Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. If you want intelligent people, of course they have to be able to question. Changing your mind. Admitting that you were wrong about something you believed in. How are you at that? And how important do you think it is that we be willing to switch sides? Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared, America's premier debate series. This podcast, not a debate this time, but one in our ongoing series of conversations about the place of debate in our world. Why is it that changing our minds is so hard? And why do we penalize mind changing? You know, a politician who changes sides in a policy debate is mocked for flip-flopping. And as a culture, aren't more of us digging in on our beliefs now than ever before? Where does this tension come from? And What's the evidence that being able to change one's mind is a virtue? And if that's true, how do we get better at it? Well, to have a conversation about this, I'm joined by Ray Dalio, who has made a fortune admitting his mistakes and changing his mind and turning that experience into a way of doing business. Ray Dalio, thanks so much for joining us on Intelligence Squared. I'm looking forward to it. So, Ray, in in 45 seconds or less, what are you going to persuade us of in this conversation? That knowing how to deal with what you don't know is more important than anything you know. That's it in a very, very tight sentence. And I think we're going to go a long way with that thought. I want to introduce people who don't know who you are uh, to them by telling us a little bit about your life story. You are the founder of Bridgewater Associates, which is uh, one of the world's largest and most successful hedge funds. You've been in the business for Oh, back in since the 60s, I believe. And um, you have reached the point in life where you're starting to dispense wisdom. You've written books on on the principles uh, that you've applied and de- derived from your work and that you have applied uh, to your business in running the hedge fund. And I want to I want to ask you to tell us how your life story dovetails with this notion of changing your minds and the thing that you were just talking about, you know, being able to know that there are things that you don't know. Well, I think it's very practical, and I've learned it through the realities of uh, being an investor and being wrong a fair amount, um, that um, I just want to be right. It doesn't have to come from me. And how stupid is it to not be flexible? It's just so dumb, and it's, but it's that people form conclusions, and they're attached to the conclusions— rather than working themselves to the right answer. After all, if there's a disagreement, how do you know that the wrong person isn't you rather than the other person? And so the art of thoughtful disagreement, to be able to consider the other side, of course, is a f- essential step toward getting to the right answer. So it's dumb. It's dumb um, but I've asked neuroscientists about it. I've asked uh, educators about it. It's part neuroscience, I understand, and it's part our environments. Um, there is something in our brains um, that has to do with uh, the amygdala, the part of the brain that interprets disagreement as 
or a challenge as something like an aggressive act in which there's a fight or flight. So if you disagree, are you attacking me? No, I mean, you're not attacking me. I'm just curious. I just disagree, but that's part of it. And part of it is the education system that is brought up with, oh, great, you're smart. You got the right answer. That doesn't teach um, the benefit of learning from being wrong because almost all learning comes from being wrong because if you're right, what is there to learn? And if you're, if you're wrong, that's your learning opportunity, but it's not taught. So, so you're a highly, a highly honed mistake admitter um, and, 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 and long experience of making mistakes as well. But was this always you? Were you always comfortable with knowing that you were wrong? Did you even know that you were open to the possibility that you were really wrong about something? Well, I, I remember one case where I got beat over the head by my realities that really made it come through to me. Um, I could tell you that story if you want. Sure. Um, yeah. But, uh, okay. So, it's 1979-80-81, and I had calculated that American banks had lent more money to foreign countries than those countries were going to be able to pay back and that this was going to produce a big debt crisis and with it an, an economic collapse. And it was a very, very controversial point of view. And, and let, me, let me interrupt for a second. And, and how much standing did you have publicly at this time? Oh, hardly, have, uh, hardly anything. Um, but it got a lot of attention in the media and so on. And then, and, and then on August 1982, Mexico defaulted on its debt and a number of countries followed. And then I'm given a lot more attention. I was asked to testify to Congress. I was on a uh, TV show at the time called Wall Street Week, which was a big deal TV show. Okay, because I was right. And I thought that we we're going to have an economic collapse. And I could not have been more wrong. August 1982 was the exact bottom of the stock market. And we went on to move that. I lost money for myself. I lost money for my clients. I um, got so broke that I had to borrow $4,000 from my dad to help to pay for family bills. And, um, you know, and it was a, a really humiliating experience. Um, and it was one of the best experiences, most transformative experiences of my life because it was painful. Because then I started to think, how do I know if I'm wrong? Like, I don't want to go through this again. And, and, and so I started to try to find the smartest people who would disagree with me to understand their reasoning. And then I would go back in history and find out different periods of history of analogous things to happening. And, and it really taught me um, both a fear from being long, wrong about being wrong, but without losing my audacity. In other words, I, I wanted to continue to have all the upside of making the bets, but I didn't want to have the downside of those types of painful experience. <clears throat> and that taught me how to deal with not with the possibility I'm being wrong, which is mostly thoughtful disagreement and also knowing how to diversify my bets better. And, mm -hmm. and so that changed everything. 
So I built my company. That's That was really the bottom. And, and ever since then, we have this um, idea meritocracy in which um, we have processes and so on in place in which we have that thoughtful debate and evidence-based decision-making. And that has been the basis more than anything of our our success and and my success because I learn about that. I want people who are smart to disagree with me and me with them. Because if you're also doing something in which you can't rely on the consensus, in the markets, you can't rely on the consensus because the consensus is built into the price. So in order to be right, you have to bet against the consensus, and that means a lot of smart people. And also, if you're an entrepreneur, you have to bet against the consensus. So the idea of triangulating and debating and working it through, we I, through that experience, discovered it, and I institutionalized it. And it's been, more than anything, the basis of whatever success we've had since then. So, so you're, you're talking about having gone through a process of needing to examine why you made a mistake, admitting you'd made a mistake, trying to find out why you'd made the mistake, trying to find out what the process of making that mistake was, and then flipping that into a positive, uh, uh, turning that upside down into a process in which you could try to avoid that mistake in the future. I want to go forward with that part of the conversation, but first I want to go I, I back. Want to, I want to clarify that point. Sure. I was, it, was more, it was more visceral than that. I wanted to make the bets, but I was afraid of being wrong. Um, and I didn't want to stop that. And it just was so much more logical that I find the smartest people I can find and have them stress test my thinking and my stress testing their thinking didn't stop me from thinking. I don't want to. I didn't want to believe what they um, were saying just because they were saying it. So it's not following. It was stress testing and that having that debate and learning and having others. You know, it's like if I had a doctor. Let's say you have a disease, and um, and you want to. Ha- well, you've got to make a choice. How are you going to make the decision? Um, well, find the smartest doctors that you can have, and ideally those who will disagree with each other. And if they kind of all line up and what they're saying is logical, okay, then you go that with that path. Um, if, if they disagree, that's going to highlight the subject area to focus in on to try to get it right. And it's also going to mean like, what, am I going to be the one who's going to tell me the path? So through triangulation with the smartest people I can, I can raise my probabilities of being right. Now, that's not theoretical. That's a reality. You took about 15 seconds to go through the part of the story back in 1982 where you were wrong. The business fell apart. You lost money for clients. You lost money for yourself. You needed to borrow $4,000. And then and then I decided I was going to change. I, I just want to go back and make that not 15 seconds, but maybe a couple of minutes about that process that you went through, because I think that was that's the crux of that moment of, of a kind of transformation for you. And also, I think, would be challenging for people to think about themselves. You know, when they've been wrong, how have they dealt with it? Have they brushed past it? Have they been in denial? You... You faced it. I just want to go back to that process of facing it. How long did it take? Were you depressed? Were you, were you, were you on fire about trying to solve the problem? How, what were you going through at the time? Um, 
it it was painful. It was I I I felt a lot of a lot of pain, and and I learned another principle through this: pain plus reflection equals progress. There's an avoidance of pain, but pain is is a teaching mechanism, and so. What I realized when I was going through this, there's an emotional part of us, the subliminal emotional part of us, and then there's the calm intellectual part of us. And I, I, I meditate. I'm, and meditation has helped me a lot because it's allowed me just to sort of calm myself down and deal with that. But the answer to your question was, wow, a, a lot of pain. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. More when we return. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. We're talking with Ray Dalio about the power and the transformative experience of changing your mind. Ray was just discussing what it was like for him to make some early mistakes in his career. The answer to your question was, wow, a a lot of pain. A lot of pain because... First of all, uh, you know, I have to take care of my family. And am I going to give up on my dream to have to go um, to have my own business? And, and then I'm going to put on a tie and go down to Wall Street. And I don't want to do that. And and then, uh, uh, you know, and then the humiliation and all of that. But, but, you know, it passes. All of these things pass. They seem the big deals at the time and they and they start to pass. And the reflection that comes or can come of thinking, how do I approach that differently um, was, you know, what helped me. So it was painful. And then it was curious because I had to solve the problem. And the curiosity led me in this direction. So that's how it felt. First painful, then, then curious, reflecting, and then the epiphany. The epiphany being that you had made a mistake and that there was a way to be better about... Yeah, the, not, not the, epiphany, the, the epiphany was how to deal with the poss- possibility of painfully being wrong. In other words, I could reduce the chances of painfully being wrong. I can raise my probabilities of making the right decision. If I do it this way, so I don't lose the, I don't lose the upside. I get more upside. I see. I, I, yeah. I it's just the mechanics of it. I can get yeah. more upside. I can reduce my downside. It's just so much better a way to make decisions. Yeah. I have a, a you know, uh, I, I like to write down certain principles that uh, when these things occur to me, and I, and I and one of the principles is. Decision-making is a two-step process. First, taking in, then making decisions. A lot of people make it, they make it a one-step process. A lot of people make the decisions, and it stands in the way of taking it in. And when I start to realize, and others start to realize, that taking it in with curiosity, am I the wrong one? And how do I learn more is a very powerful process. So was it ever about the difficulty of, in, of knowing 
that you might be wrong? You, you must have known your entire life that whatever you were doing might be wrong. I mean, if you're investing, it's always a gamble and a gamble always has a risk and a risk means that the position you're taking turns out to be wrong. So it's not necessarily, it sounds to me, that you were just blithely, com comfortably, totally confident all the time that you were right. No, no, well, it's a degree thing, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it, um, I think it's like, most people, you know, I think I'm right. I make the decision. Um, hey, I'm doing it pretty well. I don't get them all right. That kind of thing before, I think. And, and, and not that I was always curious. So you're right. It was, it's a degree thing. But mm -hmm. then when I realize there are so m many smart people out there, there are so many, what's the probability of me singly having the best thinking in my head, better than anything that's out there. So that's why when you asked me the question uh, at, uh, at the beginning of the interview, um, and you asked me, well, you know, what, what am I trying to convince you of? That I said that knowing how to deal with what, you're, what you don't know is so much more valuable than anything you know. That kind of epiphany that, you know, what, do, what can I know? I can only know a small fraction of what there is in terms of the best thinking, and I can tap that, and that's fabulous and raise my probability. That was really what the punch in the face gave me, I think. Yeah. You, you, have, you have talked about in the past and wrote about in your book that you were, uh, you were not a, in elementary school, high school, you were not a sharp student. You were bad rote memory and just didn't like sitting there taking instruction, being told what to do. Then in your TED talk, you share that in, uh, I, I think around 82, maybe it was the late seventies, you testified before Congress, you went on wall street week and you were making predictions for, um, for currency, uh, default to lead to a great depression, which as you pointed out, didn't happen, a, a depression and it didn't happen. But what I found interesting in the TED talk is that, you, you showed yourself making these predictions as a younger man. And then you turn to the audience and says, I look at that guy and he was an arrogant jerk. And I'm wondering why you use the word arrogant about yourself as well, opposed to I just was so wrong. arrogant. You know, uh, you, you look at it and like I was so overconfident, mm -hmm. you know. You know, like the saying, um, um, often wrong but never in doubt. You know, well, you know, you looked at me. I look at me, and I look at me. I say, "Wow, that was a, that was an arrogant, <laughs> he's an arrogant jerk." Well, you were wrong, but were you? I was arrogant. Arrogant mean meaning so overconfident, unjustifiably overconfident. But does that mean you had not sufficiently examined your premises? Is that where the unjustification comes in? Lack of justification comes in. I think everything is a probability. So I worked hard to try to come up with that. And I was right in calculating that we would get the defaults and so on, but that didn't matter. Um, what? Um, it's just that I wasn't, I, I was too confident. So I said I did two things, take in the, the best thoughtful disagreement and then also diversify my bets better and find a way that through the diversification of my bets, I didn't reduce my 
returns, and I, um, but I reduced my risks. And I did those you, two things. I, I, in other words, I had to solve a puzzle. The way it looked to me, just to give you the picture, I remember at the time, um, it, it, it's like I was sitting on one side of a jungle and I could have a safe life if I didn't cross the jungle. Just imagine you're in that position. But um, if you can have a terrific life, you've got to cross the jungle. But in that jungle are all of these threats. Now, what do you want to do? Do you want to have an ordinary life and sit on the one side of the jungle and and that take risk? But because but risk and opportunity go together. So how do you go into that jungle? And the answer to that question is to go into that jungle with other people who could see what you don't see and you contribute and they contribute. People who are strong where you are weak in terms of the various types of thinking. There are different kinds of thinking. I put out a test. This is such a big deal for me. Um, I started to learn how people think differently. And um, I started with Myers-Briggs and then a number of uh, personality profile tests. And I just recently put out, uh, created um, a test that, that with some of the best, um, Adam Grant and a number of psychometricians. And I put it out for free for everybody. It's called Principles U. You can go online and it's free to learn about how you're thinking. Because what I learned is everybody has strengths and weaknesses. And to be able to work with people who are strong where you're weak and to have that thoughtful disagreement is common sense. It's powerful. I, it's almost silly that we're having this conversation that it's not the norm, right? Mm. Sure. What is controversial? What are your weaknesses? Well, a, 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 a number of them. Um, um, first of all, I, as I mentioned before, I'm, um, I have a, a, a terrible rote memory. I'm much more of a sort of conceptual. If you would give me uh, people's names, f- phone numbers, any of that kind of thing, um, uh, p- people will tell me I'm, um, I can be um, overbearing, that I can, um, y- you know, um, uh, 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 be too aggressive. That, that, that's a personality thing as opposed to a cognitive thing. I, I, I thought you were speaking. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of big picture, not detail. Um, I, um, I hate, um, I, I'm, I'm sort of creative, but not reliable. Um, I'm, I'm much more right-brained than I'm left-brained. So where I want to move forward with this is, and, and the reason that we reached out to you was uh, for this conversation was when we began to understand that as a debate organization, we became interested in the fact that within Bridgewater Associates, which is, I think, something like 1,500 employees, you actually encourage uh, an atmosphere, almost, I think, require an atmosphere of debate about ideas, that it's got to be it's got to be open. It's got to be out there. Disagreements need to be surfaced. Disagreements need to be transparent, worked through. Um, and I, I want to know how that how that works and also how it's working out. Well, I, again, I, I just think it's so logical. Um, so um, in one sentence, what I realized I wanted and, and then uh, built was 
an idea meritocracy in which the goals are meaningful work and meaningful relationships through radical truthfulness and radical transparency. So idea meritocracy, the best idea is winning out. <clears throat> um, meaningful work, excellent work that you're into it, you're into the mission and um, excellent relationships like being Navy SEALs or uh, in on a mission together but through radical truthfulness and radical transparency. Now, what I don't understand logically, but I uh, do understand through psychologists emotionally, that uh, truthfulness um, about what one believes to be true is, some, is, is often difficult. If mm. either to receive criticism or give criticism or to disagree, a lot of people find that difficult. And so they, um, they hide it. Um, and then nobody knows what's true. If I don't know what you're thinking and you don't know what I'm thinking, the lack of clarity in and of itself is dysfunctional you get a political organization and not one that gets at what's really going on, and you lose trust. If you can speak frankly in a considerate way, that doesn't mean in an insulting way, and you're trying to say, what do you really think? Let me give you an example. Um, I would want to know, uh, face with the choice, um, I would want want to know what you really think. And I, and I if, if I asked you, if would you like me to tell you what I really think or would you rather hold it to myself? Intellectually, you, of course, would want to know. Yeah. But emotionally, it's you might have yeah. that reaction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that reaction... Is, a, is one of the most important impediments to success, to finding out what's true and to knowing how to have that. So um, we value that. And, and, and think about that. Uh, when I, if I didn't do that, um, if I didn't welcome the debate and the challenging, the people would have the same thoughts. They'll have the critical, but they won't stress test them. They'll talk behind each other's backs. It won't be brought out. And also, intelligent people are almost suppressed from being intelligent because they can't question. If you want intelligent people, they of course they have to be able to question. So that's you know, that's how it's evolved. How and how formalized is this process? At Bridgewater. Oh, it's form, it's it's very formalized. Um, um, as I described it in, in, in the book, there there are protocols. For example, um, um, there's a two minute rule. You, you know, in other words, you say, "Okay, give me two minutes without interruption. Let me lay it out." There's a, the requ there's the request for um, can you repeat my perspective? In other words, there are protocols that we go through. There is, um, there are... Wait, wait, repeat your perspective is really important. I want to stop on that. So I've heard you out 
Can you tell me what my point of view is? Can you, could you be me? Could you make my argument? Can you make my argument Mm -hmm. to show that you hear me? Can you give me two minutes? I have a two minute rule. Can you give me two minutes? No interruptions. Can you repeat what I just said? Um, Those kinds of things. Two, we have, um, you saw the TED talk. We have a, um, a dot collector, we call it. And by the way, I'm going to make this also available for everybody in the public for free, in which different people are showing what they're thinking while this discussion is going on. On a visual app application kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Just for people who haven't seen it right. yet. Right. So mm-hmm. they're giving, they're giving um, notions and feedback. And then there's the accumulation of... Uh, patterns and evidence that show how do you think. And the hero is not the person who's right. The hero and the one who really gains is the person um, who learns and moves from an opinion to being right. So establishing those norms, it's admirable. It's, but this is a problem of our education system, or even maybe the debate. You know, when you have the debate, it's a good thing, um, your show, because you can listen to both sides, and then you realize the complexities and the pros and cons. That's fabulous. Well, let me, we, we even actually coach the, we don't give the debaters coaching in the substance of what they're talking about, but I coach them ahead of time. And one piece of advice I give for a sort of formal approach to it is know what your opponents are going to say. Know, know their arguments. In fact, if you're speaking before them, use that opportunity to preempt your opponent. Now, my opponent's going to say such and such and such and be accurate about it. Um, you're still helping them win the debate. And you're viewing winning as... Um, their point of view being proven right as distinct from winning would be getting to the truth. In other words, if, if, yeah, if, if you. you view winning as to that we come out of here um, closer to the right answer, closer to the truth, what should we do or what's true, that's really winning. That, but that's where we put it in the position. What we're playing for is the audience to have the experience of hearing the both both views. Yeah, uh, you're asking me what it's like at Bridgewater and what I'm trying to yeah. achieve, and so mm-hmm. I'm not knocking what you're doing. I'm just trying to say that we are raised in a society in which winning is convincing the other person, and that I started being right. And in the beginning here, you gave the example of the politician who can't change his mind, okay? And that's a problem. A problem uh, what, because if you, can, if you can realize that moving to the better answer is winning, that it is not humiliating, that it is admirable to... Um, say, I see, and I can move beyond. Because the truly intelligent, successful person will do that. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. This is a reminder to all of you that Intelligence Squared U.S. is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. 
Our mission is to restore critical thinking and facts and reason and civility to American public discourse. We would love your support. Please visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org to join the debate and hear from both sides of every issue. More debate when we return. Welcome back. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. Let's jump right back into our discussion. Let, so let me take my stab at reiterating what I think you're saying, is that the point is not who wins and who loses, or that one side wins or loses, or one side triumphs. The point is what you learn from the process of hearing the idea stress-tested between two or more parties. What's what's the best version that comes out? And that, and that ultimately... And almost sort of irresistibly and inevitably, everybody in the room will gravitate towards that that conclusion. Whatever gets you closer to the best thinking, the yeah. best answer, whatever gets you closer to the answer of what should I do, that is winning. So in your field, you have a very clear, literally numeric metric for determining who's right most of the time and who's wrong most of the time. Investing tends to be a zero-sum game. Your hedge fund has done fabulously well. I, I, I think at the time of the TED Talk, you said 23 of the last 26 years you made money. In, a, in any case, making, you know, the, the numbers, the numbers, the, the billions tell the story in your case, that, that whether you're on track or not on track. But what about expanding this to other aspects of life? For example, political policy decisions, et cetera, where, and, and you are asking uh, with, with, with your books for your ideas to carry beyond finance. How do we know, in addition to the question of how do I know if I'm wrong or right, how do we know that the outcomes we're getting are the best outcomes when it's not something that you can figure out by an entry in a ledger book? Well, I mean, I, I think it goes without saying that open-mindedness is going to be give you more facts, more information, more perspective than closed-mindedness. Mm-hmm. And so that's going to be, you're going to make a better decision if you're not attached to a particular point of view and you're closed-minded, I don't think that has to be proven with statistics. That's just common sense, right? Yeah, but I'm... And like, is, is anything we're saying controversial? Is anything I'm saying controversial from an intellectual point of view? I think it's an oddity that we would, that we're not all saying, of course, um, mistakes provide good learning opportunities. And we just want to get at the right answer. And any of us could be wrong or right. And if we go through a good process in which we're open-minded, we're going to get at better decisions. And those people who don't do that are kind of odd. Do you, do you think there's a, that there's a, a trend in this regard? I think or? we're moving um, badly to it. Um, I think you could see that in the, uh, in the nature of the decision-making. Um, when the cause that people are behind is more important than the system for resolving disagreement, the system is in jeopardy. And I think that when you look at it right now, people are screaming opinions at each other and and almost demanding, like almost temper tantrums, the notion of uh, moderation, the notion of thoughtful disagreement to try to get that the right answer, cohesiveness. If you take the politics, the the Republicans are the most conservative that they've been since 1900, and the Democrats, by voting pattern, most 
uh, liberal, or let's say uh, left uh, um, since 1900. And the voting across party lines has never been less. The statistic, I think it was a Pew poll, said that something like 15% of Democrats and 10% of Republicans wished members of the other party would die. I I don't know. But there's a lot of um, opinions and anger and and not as much open-mindedness. And I'm not saying this just because of my interpretation. I'm saying it based on the statistics that I'm looking at that go back over periods of time. So I don't see a great deal of that thoughtful disagreement. It's more like people are on, they have their opinions and and they want to fight for their opinions and they don't want to exchange thoughts as much, I don't think. And think, maybe I'm wrong and let me hear the other guy. And that worries you. Yeah, well, history has shown that when there are uh, large wealth values and um, thoughtful gaps and you have an economic downturn and there are, uh, you know, other challenges that um, people fight more and and it makes for more dysfunction. So, well, let, let's take, for example, um, um, the monetary policy. So we're getting into uh, the domain of economics and yeah, and let, let's just let, as we do this pivot, let me point out you you're coming out with a book in November where you you look at cycles of history and 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 you have found previous time periods that represent some degree of model for the certain uh, variables being in place that you feel are in place again now. Uh, the t- title of the book is Changing World Orders. The same patterns um, that happen over and over again and, and yeah. serve to be a history to help me understand what's going on now. Um, how people are with each other has a very big effect of whether they um, have and pr- produce better results or worse results. And when there's polarity and internal conflict, um, it produces a lot of problems. And that internal conflict has reasons. Um, wealth gaps, income gaps, values gaps. And you take that and if you have a bad economic condition, you have a downturn, people tend to fight with each other and it's very harmful. So I worry and, about it. I, I believe yeah. in, I believe the opposite should be true, right? Sure. Well, I assume you do too, but otherwise you wouldn't be doing what you're doing. Another thing, assumption I think we can make is that most people who are listening to this podcast Knowing what we do, knowing that by definition we present at least two points of view and usually more than that about an argument, and, and it can be in an artificial way. I mean, no argument is so clean cut usually that our propositions are the only options, but um, it's it's an exercise in stress testing ideas. I, I, I pick up on your use of the term stress test because that's how we see what a debate really is. Um, that the, the, those who are listening to us now are probably are pretty good with the idea that uh, that ideas need to be stress tested. And also, maybe also with the idea that um, there's not going to be total certainty, that you you need to be revising all of the time, um, that you might need to live with some ambiguity about what's the truth or what's not the truth. Um, but I'm wondering if, 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 those, if there are people in our audience who who would like to exercise their open-mindedness. Since you've talked about yourself as somebody who went from not being particularly good at it to 
mastering the, the skill and insisting upon it for your employees. What, what guidance can you give? I guess maybe from the psychological point of view, what guidance can you give to our listeners who, who, who desire to be part of this more open-minded core, C-O-R-P-S? Um, you know, is, there a, is there a way to go about it or not? Well, um, I, I think of two things. There's, there are two parts of our minds, by and large. There's the subliminal, emotional part of our mind that affects our decision-making. And then there's the conscious, logical part of our minds. And um, so, two things. Um, pain plus reflection equals progress. So, um, if one can calm oneself down when one gets bad outcomes and own those bad outcomes and then realize that there might be things that open-mindedness could bring, that would be good. And then another thing that's helped me a lot, I mentioned it before, uh, I find meditation helps me because meditation, um, that, that meditation connects the conscious with the subconscious when you meditate. And uh, that process essentially gives me an equanimity, a, um, a calmness that allows me to, um, to do that. So what comes to mind would be um, learn from the pain, reflect after it, and think how, what are the lessons and almost develop a knee-jerk or an instinctual reaction that when there's pain, there should be quality reflection and there could be learning. And so for me, it's like um, the pain almost um, gives me like a puzzle to solve. And if I can solve the puzzle, I can get a gem. And the puzzle is, what would I have done differently to, pro to produce a different result? That's the puzzle. And the gem is a learning or a principle that I could say, okay, I will do that in the future. And if you could start to develop that kind of instinct, pain plus mm -hmm. reflection equals progress type of thing to maximize the curiosity and learning curiosity. And then I, what does help me uh, is meditation too. Maybe that helps because it gives the equanimity, that calmness, and it connects the subliminal to the uh, logical. So, so, so you may give exactly the same answer to the next part of the question. You may again say meditation and sort of self-awareness, but, but I, I think for a lot of people, one of the, obstacles to changing your mind is is shame perhaps at having been wrong that if you held a position and you held it for a long time and this the the intellectual the cerebral case is made that it was just totally wrong that's embarrassing and shameful and i would think that that would be a disincentive at an emotional level to changing your mind or at least to admitting to anybody that you're changing your mind Oh, it, it is. It is so much for both. But I mean, that is absolutely so stupid. I mean, like I'd be really embarrassed at the stupidity of it. Right. In mm -hmm. other words, um, it, it, but I would understand it's been trained into us. Uh, but when, when I say I don't want to change my mind. I, I mean, if you verbalize it, doesn't that sound stupid? Yeah, ridiculous. But but we see that happening in the political realm 
constantly. I can't deal with the politicians in the political realm. That's fine. I just to speak into each one of the people on this podcast. It's no, no, it's normal, like you're saying. But if you can then just kind of intellectualize it enough and say, boy, is that what I want to do? I don't want to admit I'm wrong so that I could be right. How good are you at work when your employees tell you that you were wrong? First of all, how many really are doing? I've had a lot of bosses who have said, I want to know when you think I'm wrong. And it's turned out that they really don't. I, I love it. I need it. I, first, I need it for, for a few reasons. And I love it. Um, well, one of the reasons is I could be wrong. Another reason is that person um, believes I'm wrong and they will hold that in their head unless we could have a quality conversation. And what is there to lose through a quality conversation? Because if they can show me I'm wrong, that's great. And so we'll have a better relationship because they can do that. What if they can't show you that they're wrong? What if, what if they make the case and you're not convinced? You're the ultimate, sounds like you're the ultimate arbiter of that. I have, we have this believability weighted decision making process. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I would take probably a little bit of time to explain how we do it, but, um, there are different, um, based on what other people think and certain objective measures, different people on different questions and different attributes have different believability weighting. And I won't, I don't think I ever overweighed a believability weighted um, decision that was weighted um, where more people who had believability uh, thought one thing. So I, I don't want that. There's only one way I can earn that. And, and, and that is that I have a system that people believe is fair in having an idea of meritocracy. Because otherwise, I'll also have a bunch of followers, and and if you have if you have a bunch of followers, they can't be effective thinkers. If you always get used to following instructions, you're not going to be able to think well. So I want thinkers. I I value that exchange, and yes, and I want it at all ages. I'm, I'm but I really want it. Okay. If you really want it, you just have to get yourself in that position, I think. Mm -hmm. I want to go to the end of your TED Talk. Uh, you did it in 2017, and you were sharing the internal process used at Bridgewater to, to you talking about believability. You were demonstrating the app about how that works. You were talking about you extract principles, turn them into algorithms. You were talking about the what you call the radical transparency of the way people think. And, and, you, and you wrapped up like this. This is approximately the last 45 seconds of the talk. So when you leave this room, I'd like you to observe yourself in conversations with others. Imagine if you knew what they were really thinking. And imagine if you knew what they were really like. And imagine if they knew what you were really thinking and what you were really like. It would certainly clear things up a lot. Now imagine that you can have algorithms that will help you gather all that information and even help you make decisions in an idea meritocratic way. This sort of radical transparency is coming at you, and it is going to affect your life. And in my opinion, 
It's going to be wonderful. A lot of what you said in that talk and even in that wrap up is what we're talking about now is being able to know how other people think and having that radical transparency you're arguing in this program would be a good thing. So you, 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 you'd, you'd stop wasting a lot of time. You were talking about how this is coming inevitably towards the audience. And I stopped and I thought, wait, you, you hadn't talked about it's coming to everybody throughout most of the talk. So I just want to get at what you were talking about at the end there. What's coming at us? Um, the, the fact that um, every, everybody can know exactly what you're like by all the fingerprints that you're living, leaving all over the place, right? In other words, you're operating on your devices and all the data that is being collected and they um, and that data collection in one way or another almost has to be avoided not to know uh, what you're like in a very complete and intimate way. Which you were suggesting to the audience there is going to be a pretty positive outcome. And well, I- it, it's really like a, um, you know, like most of these things, it's a sword that can cut either way, uh-huh. right? But knowledge of what you're like, knowledge of what others are like, by and large, if people can accept those things and, and change and, and evolve, knowledge of what's true is by and large a good thing, unless it's used to hurt other people. But by and large, it's a, it's a, it's a by and large a good thing. But anyway, it's coming at you, right? Mm-hmm. But you were excited. You're, you sounded like you said this, you think it's going to be wonderful. I think it's how it's used. It's coming at us. And so yeah. we see it. Now the question is, how do you how do you use that when you think about that? Okay, am I really like that? And then and realizing it's okay whatever reality is, because then you can move beyond it. Like if you're really like that, which means it has strengths and weaknesses, you can work with people who are strong where you are weak, and you can open-mindedly operate and that you could have great collective decision-making and you could have higher levels of trust. By and large, it can be that way. But of course, um, you know, it can be bad too if people abuse it and, and hurt you. So it depends how it's handled, but it's right. coming at us. An argument for open-mindedness. And Ray Dalio, you're certainly a member of our club at Intelligence Squared. I want to thank you so much for, for spending this time with us and sharing your ideas um, and and I, I think sharing a note of optimism that we can all get there. Thank you so much for the time. And thank you for doing what you're doing in the name of open-mindedness and uh, thoughtful disagreement. So it's a pleasure to be here with you. I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope that you enjoyed it just as much as we did. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Clea Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. And Shay O'Mara is our consulting producer. Jen Zelmer is our senior researcher. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. 
exploreminnesota.com live.